Microphone, how's that? I made up for it with a little feedback. Sorry about that. I switched it. I thought off of mute, but I turned it on to mute. Sorry about that. Uh, Amy never would have dreamed that God would choose her to do something great. A shy girl, born the oldest in a family of seven, grew up in beautiful Northern Ireland, but not without pain. She and her siblings lost their father when they were very young, leaving the family virtually destitute. Eventually, she was adopted by another family who had the means to clothe and feed her. She described herself as a little, ugly, shy girl. In fact, she felt so unattractive growing up, she shunned having her picture taken. As a teenager, she was diagnosed with a degenerative nerve disease that stayed with her the rest of her years. Ultimately, that disease led to a serious struggle with arthritis, a battle she would fight the rest of her life. And something happened that changed her entire life. At the age of 20, Amy Carmichael was attending a religious convention in England, listening to a man named Hudson Taylor share the story of his mission work in China. The year was 1888. The great missionary told of what God had been doing in China and what he anticipated God would do in the future. He mentioned several times how good God was to choose him, of all people, from among the outcasts of England. By God's grace, he had learned another language, blended into a culture far different from his own. Amy sat there thinking, what if God could use me to do something such as this? She said yes to God. And from that moment, God began to do something great through that little, ugly, shy girl. And even though she said yes to God, her journey was far from simple. She felt God's call, so she signed up to join Hudson Taylor's organization. She was ready to go and serve the Lord in China. She was all set to sail to Asia, and her health deteriorated. She couldn't go. At that point, the organization dropped her because of her underlying health condition. She was devastated, of course. I'm sure she thought, I said yes to God. Why would he say no to me? What are you doing, God? After a time, her health got better, and she applied to a different organization. She ended up going to Japan instead of to China. She was there for 15 months, just long enough to get acclimated when her health problems flared up again, and she was forced to leave. Another blow to her and to her plan, another moment when she had to wonder, God, what are you doing? She ended up traveling to the southern coast of India, hoping the climate there would help her with her health. And that's where she found her true calling. She spent the rest of her life, 56 more years, serving the Lord in India. But even that was not without its twists and turns. Her ongoing health problems attacked her again. Just as her mission work was really beginning to take off, she was confined to her bed. And in fact, she spent the last two decades of her life basically bedridden. Just one more moment when she must have wondered, God, what are you doing? Maybe that's a question you've asked. What are you doing, God? Maybe there have been times when you said yes to God and things only got harder and harder. We've all experienced times in our lives that simply didn't make sense. Times when everything changed in a moment and we're left wondering, why, God, what are you doing? That's what I want us to talk about today. Last week, we had the chance to hear from Pastor Logan Mann, our candidate for lead pastor. And this week, we're going to continue our series called Why? You can see I've got my, uh, my Sesame Street letters with me again this morning. If you remember the first week of the series, we asked this question, why? 
We've looked at the book of Habakkuk, a book that's all about asking and answering that question, why? Why, God, do bad things happen? Why do you allow terrible things? This book is written by the prophet Habakkuk. It's a very honest wrestling with God. Habakkuk's a person who said yes to God, and yet he shares a struggle that many Christians throughout the ages have experienced. If God is loving and in control, why do unexpected and even bad things happen? In the first chapter we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Habakkuk the prophet asked God that question, why? And God is gracious enough to answer. God doesn't give Habakkuk an explanation, and yet He does give us a revelation. He reveals some truth about Himself, and God does that for us through His Word. And because we can know the character of God, we can trust in Him. We can yield ourselves to Him trusting in His plan even when we don't understand it. And that place of yielding, that place of surrender, that's where we left ourselves at the end of Habakkuk chapter 1. That's certainly the place where Amy Carmichael found herself, certainly uh, continually having to yield to God, saying yes to Him even when it didn't make sense. And today as we pick up our look at Habakkuk, we're going to explore our own response to God. When God puts us in a situation where we have to yield How do we respond? That's what we're going to explore today. So you could say, this is a sermon all about you, your response to God. What do you do when you don't know what God is doing? So we're going to pick up the story in Habakkuk chapter 2. And just to refresh our memories, Habakkuk, he's looked around at his world. He's seen all the terrible things that are happening. He's heartbroken. And he asks God that simple but very profound question, why? And God answers him. God tells him not to worry. God has a solution to all the problems. His solution is to bring a bigger problem. God's plan is to allow the the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come and, and have their way with Habakkuk's people, with God's people. So Habakkuk, he's heard God's response, but he's still surprised. God's solution to the problem is just a much worse problem. Habakkuk isn't quite sure how to respond, but he finally makes a choice to yield to God, to surrender and to affirm his trust in God. He says this at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. So he's, he's trusting God, but he's still hoping for more information, hoping for something different. He's, he's saying yes to God, but it's still hard. He doesn't know what God is doing. He doesn't know what to do. And maybe you found yourself in that situation, confused by what God is doing, maybe even scared, and then God's next step is even more confusing or even more scary. Instead of clarity, you just get more chaos. That's how Habakkuk feels. That's how we've all felt at times. That's certainly how Amy Carmichael felt at so many points in her life. So how do we respond? How do you respond? What do you do when you don't know what God is doing? The second chapter of Habakkuk helps us answer that question. The the first answer, the first response for you and me is we look to God's Word. That's how God reveals Himself to us, through His Word. And that's exactly what God tells Habakkuk. Look at verse 2. The Lord, Yahweh, answered me, Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. So God gives Habakkuk a vision, and he intends Habakkuk to share it. He wanted Habakkuk to to write the vision down, just as God shepherded his people to write down his vision for us, his revelation. 
And at the end of this verse, it's, it's a bit confusing. You may have a translation that's different than what's on the screen. Your Bible might say something like, uh, write it down so that a herald may run with it. Or it might say, uh, write it on tablets so the one who reads it can run. It's not super clear what the Hebrew is saying here. But what is clear is that God gives a revelation. And God wants that recorded, written down, so that others can benefit from it. So it can be widely shared. So as we respond to God, as you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do because you don't know what God is doing, we can always look to God's Word. We can look at the way that God has revealed Himself to us, and we can take comfort in that. This message that's meant to be spread. And so often, just like Habakkuk, God puts us in these kinds of situations. God puts us in hard places, not just because He wants to teach us. He does want to teach us. But he puts us in hard places so that we can guide and encourage others. So Habakkuk writes down this vision. In fact, that's why there's a book called Habakkuk in our Bible. He writes it down in order to share it with others. And that's one thing that we can do when we don't know what God is doing. We can look to God's Word. We could share it with others. So the challenge to Habakkuk, it's the same challenge to you and me. Not just living for ourselves, but sharing with others the things that God is doing in our lives, sharing His truth with others. When Amy Carmichael was confined to her bed for the last 20 years of her life, she didn't quit serving the Lord. She ended up writing 35 books in that time, looking at God's Word and sharing it with other people. And in fact, part of the vision that God gives Habakkuk is for that very thing, for God's people to continually share what He's doing continually share His good news with others. If you skip down in Habakkuk a few verses, you see verse 14. It says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. God's plan is for the whole earth to know Him, to know His Word. It will happen. The picture in the book of Revelation is of people from every tribe, every language, every people group on earth gathered around God's throne, worshiping Him. The whole earth filled with the knowledge of God's glory. And the way that God plans to do that is so simple. God plans to use people, people like you and me, Habakkuk, people like Habakkuk, people who've been changed by God, who love God's Word, who look to God's Word and, and run with it to carry the Word of who God is and what He's done to the whole earth. So if God has such a grand plan at work, if God's capable of filling the whole earth with the knowledge of His glory, then that should give us a lot of confidence that He could solve the problems that we have. That should give us confidence to trust God even when we don't know what He's doing. We could say yes to God with confidence even when we don't know what He's doing. And that confidence leads us to the heart of this sermon that's all about you. When you find yourself in a place where you don't know what God is doing, you really only have two choices. You can worry or you can worship. You can, you can sit and fret and wonder. You can worry or you can worship. You can look to God, look to His Word, and you can worship. You can choose to say yes. The choice is up to you. And if that seems too simplistic, too simple to boil every hard moment down to two choices, let me just put it to you in the form of a question. What difference does following God make in your life? What difference does following God really make in your life? If your relationship with God doesn't move you from worry to worship, then I would say your relationship with God needs to be stronger. 
If your relationship with God doesn't give you some measure of confidence that God is still at work, even when you don't know what He's doing, I would say you need to look to God's Word. Let it encourage you. Let it change you. Let it move you to say yes. June 29th, tomorrow, is a significant day, at least according to church tradition. It's the day on which the Apostle Paul was killed. Killed because he said yes to God and because he continually made saying yes to God his priority. And as a result, June 29th has become the day of the Christian martyr, a day in which the church can reflect on all those who, like Paul, were killed for their faith. That word martyr simply means witness, like a a witness that testifies in a courtroom. And church history, past and present, is filled with people who said yes to God, testifying with their whole lives that Jesus is real and that the gospel has power. And in the presence of so many witnesses, we have to ask ourselves, what holds us back from saying yes to God? What difference does following God make in our lives? If you trust God, what keeps you from saying yes even when you don't know what God is doing? Well, this question, this idea of what do you do when you don't know what God is doing, that's at the heart of this powerful little book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk sums up this idea really well. He helps us answer the question, what do you do when you don't know what God is doing? How do you move towards yes? And his answer is probably familiar to you. It's probably familiar even if you've never read the book of Habakkuk. Even if you've never heard of the book of Habakkuk before, you still might be familiar with this idea. The way Habakkuk sums up how to respond when you don't know what God is doing, he he sums up at the end of verse 4, he says this, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Living by faith. That's what we do when we don't know what God is doing. You live by faith. That's the summation of what happens when we look to God's Word, we share it with others, we let it change us. That's the story of Amy Carmichael, so many other great saints in the past. It's the story of martyrs living by faith. And I say this idea might be familiar to you, even apart from this book of Habakkuk. That's because this verse, this summation, shows up three different times in the New Testament. The three different times writers of the New Testament quote this prophet Habakkuk, and they remind us that the righteous one will live by his faith. And I want us to look briefly at each of these places of the New Testament because they're going to help us understand how to apply this idea to ourselves. After all, this is a sermon that's all about you. The first place in the New Testament this idea appears, this idea of living by faith, it comes in the book of Galatians. And in this book, Paul's arguing that faith is what is needed for us to say yes to God. He's arguing that God doesn't require us to follow a bunch of rules. He doesn't require us to do this or do that. God gives us a lot of freedom to say yes to Him without fear. And in Galatians chapter 3, he says this, "'For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed.'" Now, it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. So we we talked this morning about looking to God's word 
And here Paul gives us a warning about that. He says, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So if we start looking at God's Word, suddenly we're on the hook to obey it. And if we don't obey all of it, then we're really in trouble. I mean, we're cursed. Seems like it might be better not to look at God's Word at all if that's what we're up against, right? But remember, the righteous live by faith. Paul's drawing a distinction here between a life of faith and a life of, of doing, of trying to do, 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 follow the law, do all the right things all the time. Well, that kind of life, not only is it exhausting, but it's cursed. Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So instead of trying to live in a way that, that earns something for ourselves, instead we live by faith. Paul Tripp says it very eloquently. He says, so many Christians load onto their shoulders a burden that they do not have to bear. They get up every morning, they pick up the heavy load of trying somehow, some way to achieve something with God. They work hard to exercise what they do not have in hopes that they can achieve what is impossible. It simply cannot work. So where does it lead? It either leads to the scary pride of self-righteousness, a culture of moralistic self-backslappers who have no problem judging those who have not achieved the level of righteousness they think they have, or it leads to fear and discouragement, a culture of people who don't run to God with their sin because they're afraid of Him. Paul wipes out this distorted, debilitating, by-your-way-into-grace culture with a striking economy of words. Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified, made righteous, by trying to do, trying to earn. All that brings is a curse. Instead, Paul goes on to say that someone else took the curse for us. Jesus himself redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So we live by faith faith in what He has done for us, faith that we don't have to strive and earn and struggle, faith that He loves us completely because He paid for us completely. He didn't just pay a down payment, He paid the whole bill. So part of living by faith, part of trusting God when you don't know what He's doing means we look to His Word, and His Word tells us that the righteous live by faith, faith that Christ has completed all the earning, all the striving. And we could trust God's good plan for us, even when things don't go the way we think, even when we don't know what God is doing. We have faith in what He's already done. And that freedom, freedom that comes when we realize that Jesus has done all the earning for us, that freedom should make us say, yes. If God loves us enough to go to such great lengths for us, to become a curse for us, then we can say yes without fear. The next place this idea from Habakkuk appears is in Romans chapter 1. In the book of Romans, Paul's writing to a church he has not visited. He wants to go to them. In fact, he wants to go beyond Rome all the way to Spain. So in some sense, he's writing this letter to the church in Rome to get them to fund his mission trip to Spain. And because of that, he spends time right at the beginning of the letter uh, introducing himself. Now, Paul, I mean, he's well-known. He's a pretty famous guy, you might say. And so he doesn't introduce himself by, oh, here's a picture of my family. We have three dogs, whatever. He, he spends time explaining his understanding of the gospel. He wants them to know 
that the, the gospel is the focus of his mission, and he wants them to know that the, the full gospel is the focus of his mission. And so as he begins to explain the gospel to them, he says these words in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So there you see this quote from Habakkuk. And, and what Paul's saying here is very important. Uh, first of all, he's telling us the core of the gospel message, that salvation comes through faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. In other words, the way that people can be saved is through the gospel. That's what brings salvation. And the way to have that gospel power applied to our lives is through faith. So Paul tells us if you want to be made righteous, justified, like he says in Galatians, you have to exercise faith, faith in the gospel of Jesus. Anyone who believes, no matter who you are, anyone who believes can have that power applied to their life. They can have salvation. So that's why the gospel is such good news, because it's for anyone. No requirements, no special favor from God needed, Jew, Greek, anyone can access the power of God for salvation. If you want to be righteous, then you live by faith. The way to be righteous is to live by faith. But there's another layer to what Paul is saying here. He quotes Habakkuk, this book that's all about what do you do when you don't know what God is doing. And he quotes it first as this way to, to summarize the core of the gospel message, the way to be righteous is to live by faith. But there's a little bit more. Uh, notice verse 17 again. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So see, the, the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. In other words, we understand something very important about God through the fact that He alone can judge the whole earth. He alone determines the standard for righteousness. He is the standard. So when we come face to face with our own sinfulness, we come face to face with God's perfect righteousness, then we learn something about Him. We learn that His standard is perfection. We learn there's no way we could reach that level of perfection, and yet the righteous ones will live by faith. God calls us righteous. God gives us His righteousness. So His righteousness is revealed. It's put on display in the power of His gospel, and one of the things that's revealed is that He gives His righteousness away to you and me. He gives it away to people who don't deserve it, people who can't earn it, people who have nothing to commend themselves except faith. God is righteous. The gospel displays that righteousness, and the gospel reveals to us that God is willing to give His righteousness away. So all this tells us something. It tells us what to do when we don't know what God is doing, when we find ourselves asking why. When we don't know what God is doing, we can live by faith. And that means we live with confidence that God is righteous. So whatever it is that He's doing, it's something righteous. He can be trusted. His righteousness has been revealed so we can trust Him. We can say yes to God because we know that He's doing something righteous. His work in our lives will lead to righteousness and will lead to uh, us sharing His righteousness with others. God gives us His righteousness so we can say yes. We can live by faith and we can give it away to other people. 
I told you there's three places in the New Testament where this line from Habakkuk, this idea that the righteous one will live by his faith, shows up. We've seen it in Galatians. We've seen it in Romans. It also shows up in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We'll look at that passage in just a moment, but before we do that, let's remind ourselves of how the prophet Habakkuk uses this phrase. So up on the screens, you'll see the text of Habakkuk 2. He says this, The Lord, Yahweh, answered me, Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end, and it will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He's without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. See, Habakkuk contrasts an egotistical person with no integrity to the righteous person, and the righteous person is willing to wait, wait for what God is going to reveal, willing to say yes to God's timing, because Habakkuk tells us this vision is for a later time, an appointed time. And even though there seems to be a delay, even when we can't see what God is doing, the righteous person has the faith that's needed to wait and to trust. In the meantime, we say, yes. And that idea, that waiting idea is picked up and explored in Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews says this, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you've done God's will, after you've said yes, you may receive what was promised, for yet in a very little while the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him, but we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. The author of Hebrews takes this idea of waiting, waiting for God's vision to come to fruition, and he applies that to a person. The, the coming one is capitalized here because it's a person, the Lord Jesus. The author of Hebrews, he's writing to this group of people. They're ready to walk away, just to throw in the towel. And he encourages them that the righteous live by faith, faith that God is still working even when things are hard, even when it requires great endurance. We want to be counted among the righteous. So we wait with faith. The coming Lord Jesus will in fact come. He will make all things right. In the meantime, we live by faith. We say yes. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You live by faith. Faith that God is righteous. Faith that Jesus is coming in His perfect timing. So I suppose you figured it out by now. You've figured out this is not actually a sermon all about you. It's really a sermon about saying yes to God, about living with faith, trusting God even when we don't know what He's doing. And even though we have a lot of confidence, confidence that Jesus became a curse so that we could become righteous, confidence that God's righteousness has been revealed and He will do good things in us and through us, confidence that God is working out His perfect plan, Jesus will return and make all things right, even though we have confident faith, Saying yes is still hard. Amy Carmichael certainly understood that. Maybe you do too. But God has not left us alone. He's given us each other. He's given us martyrs who testify to His righteousness. And sometimes the encouragement He gives us is from very unlikely sources. In my own life, I've been encouraged to keep saying yes by one of my children. 
Uh, a lot of you know my wife and I, we've adopted kids from China. What you might not know is it's actually against the law to put a child up for adoption in China. Uh, China, the whole culture is built on honor and shame, and it would not be right in their eyes to admit that you can't care for a child. So it's against the law to, to put a child up for adoption. Of course, people get around that law all the time, and people will, will put a child at a busy train station or, or a, near a police station or someplace where the child will be quickly found and then cared for, given to an orphanage, that kind of a thing. Well, for one of our kids, that's not quite his story. He was born in January, winter, and he was left outdoors and not in a public place. But he was mercifully found, and he was taken to an orphanage. But he wasn't taken to a normal orphanage. He was taken to a hospice orphanage. Everybody who had met him up to that point expected that he would die. But he didn't die. He fought, and he fought, and he got better and better. So finally, he was transferred out of a hospice orphanage to a normal orphanage where he could be adopted. And since he's been adopted by us, he's kept on fighting, fighting to learn how to walk, learn how to talk, learn how to feed himself, and he's been incredible progress, even though his brain is storming with epileptic seizures constantly, dozens of seizures each day. His story is just a walking, talking version of saying yes, and you say yes even when it's hard. Now, I don't know why God allowed all those things to happen, but I know that I've benefited from them. I've grown through watching his experiences. When I face hard stuff, think about him, I think about his attitude, and I realize things are going to be okay. I can keep saying yes, even though it's hard. God is righteous, and God has given Seth to us, to me, to increase my confidence in him, my ability to endure. Nothing I'm going to face in my life is as hard as all the things he's faced in his first few years. So I could say yes to God, and I know that you can too. And that place of yes, that's exactly where Habakkuk ends this chapter. Look at one more verse, verse 20. But Yahweh is in His holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in His presence. In the face of God, His righteousness revealed to us, in the face of His perfect goodness that removes the curse from us to put it on Himself, we have no other words to offer, but yes, we look to God, we trust His Word, and we say yes. Let's pray. God, you are indeed in your holy temple, and we want to be silent before you. We want to be silent with our doubts, with our fears, with things that stand in the way of us saying yes to you, Lord. We want that yes to be the only sound because that affirms our trust in you and your righteousness. We're grateful for the way that you have already demonstrated your righteousness. You've already revealed it to us through the power of your gospel, your son Jesus who takes the curse of sin away from us and puts it upon himself, Lord. What an amazing act of sacrifice. And we're inspired by the testimony of so many martyrs who have given their entire lives to say yes to you at the, at the ultimate cost. And so we want to move from worry to worship. We want to be a people and a church that trusts you, especially, Lord, as the church moves into a new chapter. We want to say 
yes to whatever it is that you have for us, Lord. We want to follow you, follow your will. We want to reflect your righteousness and, and share it with the whole earth. We praise you this morning, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.